when you're looking at all these like, you know, Fox News uh, videos of politicians on the border, but they make it look like it's a war zone down there. And let me tell you, when I go and talk <laughs> They're like, to, here I am at the border and it's chaos. And you're like, did you want your latte? <laughs> Welcome to the Politics Girl podcast. I'm your host, Lee McGowan. Let's get into it. Today's pod is part of a new series called Road to 24, which, as we lead up to the 2024 elections, will deal with issues, organizations, and candidates who are working to push our country in the direction of democracy and a government that works for all of us, and away from the encroaching threat of white Christian nationalism and the rising tide of authoritarianism. This series will also give you action items and a ways that you can help to fight, keep our country on a progressive path and away from the dark, regressive road many would force us to go down. With that in mind, today's guest is Congressman Ruben Gallego, the Democrat running to replace the newly independent Kirsten Sinema in the U.S. Senate. With such a slim majority, losing this state is not an option. And Democrats are defending twice as many Senate seats as Republicans in 2024. So protecting our slim majority hinges on Arizona. I'm deliberately having Ruben on early because Kirsten Sinema hasn't publicly decided if she's running again yet. Her allies expect her to run, and she already has about $8 million in funds available. But what she chooses to do will ultimately come down to how uphill the climb feels. So we want to make sure it feels really steep. Cinema had already alienated many of the Democrats in Arizona before she even left the party by doing things like voting down the $15 minimum wage, protecting the carried income tax loophole that gives tax breaks to hedge fund managers and private equity executives, negotiating with pharmaceutical companies to block a bill that would have lowered prescription drug prices, and blocking voting rights legislation. But there are more registered independents than Democrats in Arizona. John McCain's state is still considered conservative, despite the Democrats recently winning the Senate, governor, lieutenant governor, and the attorney general in the last election. What Arizona isn't is extremist. And with primaries, that is what's going to come out of the Republican Party. The way politics are today, Republicans will most likely end up nominating someone like defeated gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake or defeated Senate candidate Blake Masters to run for the Senate in 24, which leaves Arizona with either a three-way race between Mega, Cinema, and Gallego, or Gallego does so well in early numbers and support that Cinema decides running against him just isn't worth it. This is why I'm having the congressman on now. I want people to support him so enthusiastically that Cinema decides it's not in her best interest to even get in the race. The clearest path to a Democratic victory is if she doesn't run. And since we need this seat to hold the Senate and we need a major turnout in Arizona to win the presidency, the more people who know about Gallego now, the better. So without further ado, please welcome my guest, U.S. Marine Corps combat veteran, congressman for Arizona's 3rd District, and Democratic candidate for Senator of Arizona. Ruben Gallego. Welcome, Ruben. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm so glad you came. I'm, I'm having you on like a year and a half before your election because I think it is essential that you build up as much momentum as possible going into this race. I always say to people that we shouldn't think of politics as a game because politics is way more important than that and it affects almost Absolutely. every part of our lives. But in this case, I feel like sports works well as a metaphor because we can talk about what it'll take to win, what your team needs in order to bring home a victory, mm -hmm. right? So tell me why you're on yep. the field. What inspired you to run for Senate, and why is it important that we kind of build up a war chest and a great team right now? 
Well, look, I, I didn't want to run for Senate. I was very happy being a member of Congress and have been for five terms. Um, and the reason I didn't think about it is because the person I sent to Congress, someone that I you know, volunteered for, I raised money for, I vouched for with, with uh, my volunteers and with other voters, Kirsten Sinema was supposed to be doing the job. Uh, and she went there and she did not do the job. She actually went there and did quite the opposite. She basically abandoned the principles and values of Arizona. Instead of working for working class people, she worked for Wall Street uh, and hedge fund managers. Instead of you know trying to stop the price gouging when it comes to pharmaceuticals, especially for seniors, she went and actually worked for the pharmaceuticals for them to keep their high uh, ability to, to price gouges and on and on. There's just so many instances where when we needed her to do the right things, when we needed her maybe to do a tough call, given the opportunity to be a profile in courage, she always chose to you know shirk that. Uh, and I don't want to continue being in Congress if there's not going to be fundamental changes that actually help people's life. I didn't come to Congress just to check in every day and, and vote on post offices. I want to make sure people have an opportunity in this country to live the American dream. And so I've decided that I need to change who's in leadership to really you know, have an opportunity to change this country for the better. That's the thing, right? At the end of the day, you said that it's not that she didn't stay with the party. It's not even about the Democrats. It's that she didn't stay with Arizona. Correct. You know, you said that she would mm -hmm. always run more conservative than most people would have liked, but you thought yeah. that when push came to shove, she was going to have people's backs. But, you know, no one sent her there to negotiate for pharmaceutical companies. No one sent her there to negotiate for hedge fund managers and private equity. And when she makes those decisions, she isn't even talking to her constituents about them or why she wants to do them because she doesn't have town halls. She's like breaking the social construct, which I think is why so many people are so disappointed, right? And now we're at a point where exactly. recently she's just become the chief democratic opponent to the PRO Act, right? Which is, I think you're on the bill for that. You're a co-sponsor of that act, right? It's have, there to help I've been workers. for quite a while, yeah. Yeah, it's to help workers to collectively bargain and organize. So she's basically against unions on top of it all, right? And so yep. this is this is such an unfortunate situation. Like you said, you know, you're very happy being a congressman. You're very happy representing uh, Arizona's third. But at the end of the day, we need a senator from Arizona that wants to represent Represent the values of our nation, and we got to do that now. And, and working class people. I mean, again, you know, people. You don't need senators to be fighting for Wall Street. They have lots of power. Right? They have lots of lobbyists. Uh, you don't need senators to be de facto lobbyists for pharmaceutical companies. They have a lot of paid lobbyists on Capitol Hill. You know, we were we are sent here to represent the people that need help, that need representation, need someone to believe in them. Uh, and she has consistently failed. And you're right. She doesn't. She feels she doesn't have to answer to voters. She doesn't have town halls. She doesn't have unscripted moments. She doesn't do interviews with press uh, unless the the questions are arranged ahead of time. Uh, and at the end of the day, you know, this job is all about accountability. Uh, I'm accountable to my my constituents, and uh, if they're not happy with me, they have the opportunity to vote me out. Well, time's up for cinema, and we're going to uh, move in that direction. We're going to vote her out. Yeah. And I know you were actually planning to run even before she decided to become an independent. I know you were already yeah. considering primering her. And, you know, the thing about yeah. the Democrats is we don't have a particularly strong record with long term planning. The Republicans have been very great at focusing on state legislatures and the courts. And mm -hmm. now they have multiple strategies to get themselves on all the school boards. Right. They they know how to win 
in a lot of ways. They know how to right. win because they don't have the most votes. They've had to be much sneakier and much trickier about it, but they're forward right. thinking. And Democrats have had a tendency to kind of roll into town sort of six months before a federal election and try and rebuild the wheel every time, right? And it feels like we keep starting from scratch, trying to start up the machine again. And what we need is the cart already rolling and filled with ideas. So stopping it at this point feels impossible, which I think is why you're starting so early with this, because there is no reason we can't win Arizona. But as far as I'm concerned, there's also no reason we can't win other Senate seats, other congressional seats. There's no reason we can't flip the House, keep the Senate and retain the presidency. But we need to understand that it's going to take strategy and work and long term planning to do that properly. And to do that properly, we have to start, even though the election seems so far away, we have to start today. Because until we reverse Citizens United and get big money out of politics or we publicly fund elections and shorten our election seasons like they do in the UK, this is what needs to be done to win, right? We need to build an infrastructure today that will allow us to hold power tomorrow. And I always think of Emily's list when we talk like this, because for those of you who don't know, and I'm sure Ruben knows, but... Um, there was never an Emily of Emily's list. Emily is an acronym, yes, right? right? Emily is an acronym for early money is like yeast. So as the founder yeah. said, you get early money in and it makes the dough rise. And when you have money holding up the whole foundation, that's when you can start knocking on doors early. People have heard your name. It just moves along. And I think that's one of the reasons why you want to do this so early, right? You want people on your team out there talking about it because there's a possibility that if you run now and you get enough in your coffers now, cinema doesn't even run. There's a possibility of that, right? There's a a lot of possibilities. The most important possibility, number one is, you know, and this is more from my military background, is always anticipate the, the worst, right? So let's say she does stay in. Well, if she does stay in, we're still going to need the money to resource uh, our uh, efforts. Uh, one of the things I think we can do that other campaigns can't do is we could actually go and speak to younger Latino voters in Arizona. We could talk. To, and, and if you want to turn out the Latino vote in Arizona, you can't just say, I'm going to try. You have to focus on young voters because they're a huge, huge uh, block of, of those unaffiliated voters, voters that are just registered to vote, voters that just haven't been th- thinking about politics. We're going to go reach them. It's more expensive to reach them than an average voter who votes all the time, because that person is going to require a lot of touches. It's going to require a lot of education. It's going to require a lot of uh, information consistently to make sure that they go from non-voter to voter registration, to educated voter, to person that voted. And so we're going to take the time to do it. We're going to hire the people to do it. And we're going to take the professionals that know how to do it. And you just start, start early. Now, can you win without them? Sure. Uh, but why take the chance, right? If I have the time and I have the money, why not go after these voters that really you know, want to participate in our government, but have never been invited to the party? And you know, I'm going to come here with a big old uh, invitation for them to come to the party. That's great. I mean, that's the thing, right? How do you win this race? I mean, a lot of people are worried that if you are in a three-way race, we're going to, the Democrats slash cinema files are going to split the vote and we're going to hand the election to the Republicans and give the seat to them. I don't think that's going to happen. She, right now she's polling in the mid-teens in terms of, of, of people that want to vote for her. I think once this campaign really gets going and, the, and they realize who she is, how she abandoned a lot of the values of Arizonans, that I think they're not going to, she's not going to be particularly uh, attractive to, to some of these voters. Uh, I think she's going to end up finding herself being closer uh, to Republicans in the end. I think she will pick some Republican votes up. Yeah. And by that, because of that, I think she'll be able to help us more than more than anybody else. There's a lot of people saying that, that she's going to take more votes. Yeah. If she runs, she'll take more votes from Republicans than she will from Democrats. Yeah. Most Democrats are well and good over her. 
we have to we have to be, have a good campaign to ed- educate people uh, to make sure they understand who is you know who's standing up for their values who who remembers where they're actually from you know I, I come up I came up working class I you know I had to work every job imaginable under the sun to make it where I am right now uh, and I remember that when I when I operate in in Congress uh, she doesn't and I think you know making sure that we form a bond with our voters so they know that you, we may not agree hundred percent of the time but you know where my heart is and you know I always be honest with you. Uh, I think that's going to go a longer way than I think what cinema is offering, which is a very cynical point of view on politics. Yeah. And most recent polls, I mean, they have you ahead of both cinema and Carrie Lake and Blake yeah. Masters. I mean, by a lot. Uh, you're the most popular yeah. Arizona Senate candidate by far. There seems to be a lot of energy out there to defeat her. I mean, whether she yeah, runs or not. But your campaign itself is very popular. I mean, I know you raised a million dollars in the first 24 hours after you announced um, and I thought it was really interesting because when Time Magazine asked you why you would be challenging cinema for her seat, you were really clear. You said it's because she'd abandoned Arizona and no one ever yep. sees her. Right. And she the people of Arizona deserved a real representative and you wanted to be that representative. Now, as far as I'm concerned, mm-hmm. I just want to back up to your background because your story really feels like the American dream. I mean, do you want to tell mm-hmm. a little bit about your background to people who might not be as familiar sure. with you and how you found your way through that to politics? You know, I am a very lucky man. I, I have gotten to live the American dream and not just me, my whole family. You know, my, my parents are immigrants. My dad's Mexican. My mom's Colombian. I uh, was lucky enough to be born here in the United States. Uh, lived for a little bit in Mexico, but we came back. Uh, you know, we're trying to make our American dream. Things did not go well. My father uh, left. And in some regard, I'm glad he left. He was not a great father. But my mom was an amazing and strong woman. And she still is living, by the way. I'm not trying to talk her in the past tense. She actually lives about one mile down the, the road from me. And, uh, you know, she moved us into a small apartment, me and my three sisters. Uh, I slept in the living room. Uh, you know, my, my first bed was actually my college bed in quite a while. I was very happy to see my bunk bed. You know, you know I don't know if you could ever see someone get excited about a bunk bed, but that was me. Uh, and, you know, it was it was a hard experience. Uh, you know, we were poor, but we were proud. My mom believed in the American dream and she made us study hard. And, you know, I studied hard. I worked after school jobs and I was able to uh, be the first in my family to go to college uh, and got accepted into Harvard. Uh, and uh, one of the things I like to point out, you know, when I got accepted to the Harvard at that point, no one in my family had a college degree. Twenty five years later, everyone in my family has a college degree. Uh, at a minimum. So we, you know, we lived and have lived uh, within a 25 year period, the, the full American dream. And when in, in thinking about that, one of the main reasons why I ended up serving my country was because I wanted to repay uh, this, this country for giving me that opportunity. You know, it wasn't anything dramatic. I, I didn't join post 9-11 or anything else like that. I actually joined in, in the year 2000. I was just going to go join the reserves, right? My goal was to just do a, you know, a, a small six-year contract, one week in a month, two weeks a year. Didn't want to be a hero. Didn't want to do anything else. Was you wanted to give never back. Never thought I was going to be a yeah, yeah, just give back like a lot, yeah. of, a lot of people do. Uh, unfortunately, you know, war does come along and um, I get activated eventually and sent to Iraq. Uh, my unit ends up seeing the most uh, combat, some, some of the hardest combat of the war. And we ended up losing uh, the most men, uh, Marines in the war. You know, 23 of my... Uh, you know, close friends died. My best friend died. And, uh, you know, I came back from that war a very different uh, man. I was, you know, I had PTSD. I didn't know at that point, but I had PTSD. But I was also determined to make my life uh, and and the sacrifice that a lot of us dealt with uh, worthwhile. And so I started getting involved in politics to help out 
veterans. And the first bill I passed was a bill to actually give in-state tuition to veterans. It was a, it was a great bill. And, you know, thousands of Arizonans have, thousands of veterans have used that, that same bill that I did. And, you know, my, my career has kind of been moving ever since then. You know, Arizona became a crazy state in 2010. And I really got involved in trying to stop some of these anti-Latino initiatives that were out there. Turned out new voters and decided to really make a dedicated effort to actually turn this state blue. And by 2020 or 2018, we basically accomplished that. And uh, been very proud as a Democrat to lead this state and have been very proud to be working for working class people and make their lives better and, and actually make sure that they actually have the same chance that I had. You know, I, I worry that there is a young Ruben Gallego right now that looks at the world and is, and is pessimistic instead of being optimistic. When you're poor, and, in, and it, it sucks to be poor, the, the most important currency you can have is hope, right? Because hope will get you through a lot of things. Hope will get you the next day. Hope will, hope will make you propel to work harder. Right now, there's a lot of families that just feel hopeless. They, they just feel like they're working every day just to survive and not to thrive. And you have a lot of cynical politicians that are just, you know, not doing anything about it. Or feeding off of that. I think or a lot of cynical yeah. are feeding off of people's desperation to trick Absolutely. them into voting against their own best interests, to, to vote to against... Vote, to hate other people. To hate other people, to, to, distract, to blame other people. To blame people. other people, yeah. yeah. And then you have other politicians that just don't do anything and know that, like, cynically, that's actually what's happening. So that's where Kirsten is. You know, Kirsten doesn't help uh, working class people. Uh, you know, if anything, she works against them. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's not what we sent her to the Senate for. That's not what a young single mom needs in her life right now. She needs someone that actually believes in her and believes that there is a future for her and her uh, kids. Yeah. I mean, you did an interview with The New Yorker and you said that politicians weren't always very realistic that they need to see that we're living in a reality now in which people find themselves in poverty and in a way that their parents mm -hmm. never were, that we have the lowest yep. amount of home ownership, especially in people under 30. We have the highest amount of debt. All things our parents grew up with that we were expecting to have are no longer there for us. And I feel that even yeah. personally myself, and I'm a privileged person, but not the way I thought my life would go. Yeah. It's all infinitely harder. And it shouldn't be. That's the problem. Yeah. And, and politicians aren't, aren't really acknowledging this reality until very recently. They haven't really acknowledged this reality. And, and yeah. I know that the things that you want to work on, um, the things that you have been working on, obviously you've been very active in, in uh, veteran affairs and, and the military when you've been in Congress. But I know that some of the things you're working on that you would like to see if you were a senator, um, one of the yeah. ones that stands out to me is that you really want to get back to that childhood tax credit because you feel like that is something it's that massive, could yeah. really change people's lives. What else are you interested in if you were a senator? I mean, like the, I mean, if number one, just talking about the child tax credit, I mean, the, the amount of stress that parents carry right now is massive. And if you don't think the kids don't feel that stress, uh, you know, then you have something else coming, right? And so the, an ability for a parent to at least just have a little more help would be huge. When we had the child tax rate over six months, we reduced childhood poverty in this country by 50%. Yeah. Now imagine 50% of this population that does not have to grow up in poverty, what are the great ramifications of that? Less domestic violence, less violence in general, less criminality. You know, people actually gain to really fully live a, a, a full life. I think we have to do uh, subsidized childcare. Childcare is way too expensive right now. It is hard for someone to a family to both both work and then send send their kid to childcare because one one of their salaries base is going to pay for childcare. 
Uh, and that's not how, that's not a way for someone to be living into the middle class, moving to middle class. Housing. Arizona, who used, which used to be a very, you know, uh, inexpensive city to buy a house. Right now, the average house in Arizona is $458,000. The average family is making about $70,000 in Arizona. You can't even afford uh, your average house for the average salary uh, in Arizona. So we need to figure out a way for people to buy their first starter house. I'm not saying that we're going to help them, you know, buy Shangri-La, but we need to be able to f get people to buy their first homes because that's the kind of the path that they can start building up. If even if you use like a, a, a you know the first an FHA loan, first time homeowners loan, uh, you know the down payment for that is three point five percent on four hundred fifty eight thousand dollars. That's about twenty thousand dollars you're going to end up paying after you're done with closing costs. Many adults under the age of thirty right now do not have twenty thousand dollars lying around. It's just not going to happen. And so you're dooming a generation of people uh, into different types of unstable housing and and not creating any wealth. And everything I'm telling you about is are the things that our parents had. Right. But it wasn't a coincidence. Right. It, there was government that had intentionally created these this program, these economic systems to make sure that there was a growing middle class. What's happening right now, it's not a failure on millennials, it's not a failure, a failure on Gen X Xers. It's not like we're dumber than, than the generation before us. We're not lazier than them. No, we're uh, not buying too many just, lattes. They we're not buying too many lattes. It's just at the end of the day, the system changed when they, they there was a there was a direct decision right after World War II that we're going to invest in society. We're going to make sure that kids had public schools, they had public universities to go to, that there was good paying jobs through union jobs, that there was good wages, uh, and there was uh, cheap and affordable housing. Over the last 40 years, they have been, that has been little, little by little has been whittled away. Uh, and the way we've been whittling it away is just by tax cuts here, tax cuts there. And next thing you know, we find ourselves in this situation. I just was talking to one of my Marine Corps buddies, you know, his, his son wants to go to school and he was asking me about scholarships and he keeps applying. And his problem is that his family now makes too much money, but not enough to send his kid to school, but not enough to qualify for any types of scholarship. And so we have this idea that poverty means you're making $20,000 a year. No, poverty now is closer to 60 to $70,000, especially if you have like a family of four. And nobody wants to accept that. And the government doesn't want to accept that. But this is the community that needs help. We need to really help uh, the, you know, everyone below that, uh, that threshold, or else you're going to have a really harsh, harsh future. People aren't capitalizing on their full potential because the government doesn't believe in their full, their full potential, at least when it comes to our investments through, through our, our programming. Yeah, which is why we need new voices in Congress and why we need new voices in government, because a lot of people are living who have been in government for a long time. They're living back when it used to be like this. So they can't see the reality right. because they're not living the reality. Whereas you're talking mm -hmm. about speaking for people that, like you said, no, there's no lobbyist group for working families. There's no lobbyist no. group for, you know, affordable pre-K. You know, there's just not. And we need that if people are going to be able to function in our society, because the society we have right now feels like a broken capitalistic, late stage capitalistic system in which we're creating a new feudal system. Right. And that doesn't work for well, anybody. And they want to blame us instead of instead of looking at the reality of how we invested in people. You know, everyone keeps I don't know if you keep reading these articles like, oh, no one's having kids anymore. Well, it's not that people don't want to have kids. You can't afford to have a kid. Yeah. It's expensive to have a kid and you you can't. You don't have, uh, you know, healthcare is expensive, schools expensive, childcare is expensive. You'll hear Republicans talking about no one having kids, no one having kids. It's not that like Americans just stop wanting to have kids. It's like we literally can't afford to have kids and raise them well. So if you want to actually have kids, and I think 
look, that could be a very bipartisan position. Like, yeah, we should, you know, we should encourage people having kids, but then let's actually make it financially stable for someone to do that, not just try to guilt families into having kids. Yeah, which would also feed into the whole choice element. You shouldn't be forcing women to have kids if they literally can't afford to have them. Right. It's terrible for both the economy and the women and the children that come into that situation. Yep, absolutely. We're just going to take a quick break now from the path of keeping our country healthy to the importance of keeping your body healthy. We've had AG1 by Athletic Greens in our lives for over a year now. It's a simple daily habit that's easy to take on, and it makes such an amazing difference to how you feel. You can take it in the morning or the afternoon, before working out or making your coffee, or even before starting your whole day. I always found I felt my best when I took it first thing in the morning on an empty stomach. I'm someone that never actually responded that well to multivitamins or pills. To be honest, I used to find that when I started taking multivitamins, I always got sick. And I know that doesn't make any sense, maybe it's in my head, but that's how I felt. But I never felt that way on AG1. AG1 replaces supplements like a daily multivitamin, minerals, and pre and probiotics, and it gives you better gut health and boosts your energy, supports your immune system. And if I'm being honest, I always felt like I slept better on it. AG1 is not only the best all-in-one solution for daily nutrition, it saves time and confusion and money. Each serving costs less than $3 a day, which if you've ever tried to buy a whole bunch of individual supplements, you know can add up to a lot more, and we're not even remotely sure of the results. So if you're looking for a simpler and more cost-effective supplement routine, Athletic Greens is going to give you one free year of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com slash politicsgirl. That's athletic greens.com slash politics girl and check it out i absolutely know you will not be sorry now back to ruben one of the things i also love about what you're interested in is the climate because obviously living in arizona you can see the climate crisis happening all the time the drought the water shortage and there's no way to not see that our future is entirely tied to how we manage the climate and again i think that is a new voice of the democratic party that's really going to be pushing this home and i think the young people understand this it's just that we need representatives in government who also understand this how do you feel about mm-hmm. that well look i mean it's if you're in arizona there's no way you can deny that climate change is actually a very dangerous thing you know, I've been here now for almost 20 years. And when I first got here, there was some, sometimes the nights would get kind of coolish, right? In the, in the mid eighties. Now, if it's 110 degrees during the day, it's about 103, 105 degrees at night. That is dangerous. And so we know that climate change has actually created this heat bubble in Arizona. If you go out into our rural areas, we are in a potential situation where some areas are going to have to be abandoned because of lack of water. And the reason there's a lack of water is the lack of, of people actually planning and government planning for this. Now, a lot of it's at the local level. The federal level has to be the leader on this when a lot of these local areas start not taking care of themselves. Some of our smaller towns are going to basically get dried out because we're allowing these mega farms to basically tap as much water as possible. And once, once they're done, these mega farms get to pull up and leave and they don't care. But our small rural towns are going to be decimated. Uh, and so there's an opportunity for us to not just make this an urban issue, because it is, but it's also a rural issue, right? If you can't farm, you can't feed. If you can't feed, you can't uh, you know, take care of your family. And that's all dependent on us taking care of the environment and dealing with water and water conservation. And time and time again, you know, we, ha- we hear our Republican friends saying, well, I really care about, you know, the environment. I really care about the rural areas. Well, you need to prove it because so far, you know, what they're doing is just allowing things to kind of keep going. And eventually that that rope's going to break. Uh, and when it does, it could be really bad, especially for areas, you know, in the South. 
Yeah. No, I don't think people realize how much climate migration is going to happen. People are going to have to move because the climate has changed so much. And whether that's the entire, you know, country of India moving northward or even in Arizona, people having to move out of areas because the climate itself has become inhospitable to them. And we need to be, again, what I said we weren't before, but we need to be forward thinking. A lot of uh, kind of prognostic, military prognosticators are predicting that the the future wars, a lot of them are going to be around water, yeah. uh, not just the kind of, you know, national issues that usually happen between countries. And that's that's a very scary proposition that, that could, we could find ourselves in a situation where we're, we're ending up in battle just to secure water. And it's something that we could easily prevent, too, by real, real planning and real understanding of what's happening in, in the world. Absolutely. It's so essential. And then talking about what's happening in the world, I mean, you're a border state congressman and hopefully a border state senator soon to be. Um, and I know you're very interested in immigration reform, right? You're out there. You can clearly see what's yeah. happening. Obviously, we have a refugee and asylum crisis of some sort. Do you really believe that we can work together to fix this? You think there's a solution sure. to this? Um, so could you talk to me a little bit about that? Because I know that you've passed three bipartisan immigration reform bills out of the House in your time in Congress, but those bills end up dying on the floor because of the filibuster uh, of the Senate. Supported by Kirsten. (laughs) Had to put that in. Supporting the filibuster, that is. Right. Look, we do have an asylum situation in crisis at the border, right? People are coming and asking for asylum. We need to honor our values and create a safe, transparent, and organized way for people to apply for asylum. Now, how does that look like? Well, instead of going to random points on the border, we help them go to a port of entry. At a port of entry, they will meet um, border patrol. They will be processed and processed quickly. So that way we could you know, make adjudication whether they have a, even a right to, to, to ask for asylum and then go on from, from there. That's how we should do it. What we have right now is a system that actually benefits Republicans because they love the chaos. Yeah. They literally go down there and they will find wherever um, you know, they know that some of these humans are trying to cross and they will put themselves in front of, of there and scare people about the border. And the thing that annoys me, because, you know, I, I grew up, uh, uh, you know, in a border state also uh, for a little bit in Mexico, is that the border is a very dynamic place. In Arizona, people cross the border almost every day, both both ways, legally, right? In Arizona, we go we go shopping. Our nearest beach is in Mexico, not not California, you know, Mexican nationals cross over every day to come work in our fields and pull our food. When you're looking at all these like, you know, Fox News uh, videos of politicians on the border, they never show what's behind them. Because if you actually show what's behind them, it's some very cute little towns that have Starbucks and have Walmarts. Right. And, and every day there's commerce happening, but they make it look like it's a war zone down there. And let me tell you, when I go and talk <laughs> They're like, to, here I am at the border. It's yeah, chaos. And you're it's like, like, did you want your latte? Yeah. It's like they put, yeah, they put bulletproof vests on and walk around like it's, you know, cosplay. like they're in Baghdad. But yeah, it's cosplay. But when in, rea- in reality, like a lot of these areas that they're walking around are very, very safe. Actually, they're sometimes safer than some of the uh, cities, uh, even further north. I want to make sure when we talk about immigration and when we talk about the border, we talk about it in a rational way. We're going to talk about how we need to deal with our asylum seekers in a you know organized way, how we should have immigration reform because you can never have border security without immigration reform. Unless you have a way for people to come here legally in a transparent manner that we could enforce, you're always going to have people going to be crossing that border for a better life. So let's make the job easier for our border patrol and our customs officers 
because then they'll know who's actually coming because it's not going to be as many people coming illegally when we have a, a system for them to do it that we know who is coming, who's not through background checks, whatever else in it, what else it takes. That's how you do common sense uh, immigration reform. Yeah. When you're not a party that benefits from the chaos rather than the solutions. Like I often say, if you don't, if you don't have answers, you benefit from the questions, right? And that's what they're, they're constantly, what about this? And this is impossible. And here's the crisis. And they're not actually trying to solve it, right? Republicans are trying to frame you entering this race as a democratic civil war. They're already calling you an open borders <laughs> radical, right? And you, like I just heard your answer on the borders. You're certainly not an open borders radical. And they're suggesting, yeah, 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 yeah. No. The- they're suggesting that Senator Cinema is the safe choice. And I always think, yeah, she's the safe choice for them, right? For Republicans, she's the safe well, choice. I mean, it's a safe choice for, 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 for them because she loses. Like, yeah. she, there's no pathway for Senator Cinema to win. So of course, if, the, if, if I wasn't running, it'd be great for Republicans because then she would win. But look, they are afraid of us. We've had more than 67,000 individual donations. They've been going to my website, gallegoforarizona.com, and, and every day we get thousands of small dollar donations. They're afraid of running against me because they know that I have the support, wide support, to be able to win these types of races. They know that I'm going to get out the Latina vote to a number that this state has never seen. Uh, and so they rather just try to scare people away from me or claim that there's a democratic civil war in order to distract from it. There's no civil war uh, because I've won. Cinema is not a Democrat. She's running as independent. We have the only lane uh, and she's in third place no matter which, which way uh, this goes. And we're beating every Republican right now. So they need to focus on themselves. We're going to focus on our race, continue to raise our money, continue to get out there and push the issues and we're going to win. And they're not going to scare us away. I don't think it'll be a scare a lot of Arizonans away either. Yeah, I certainly hope that that's true. I mean, that same New Yorker article pointed out that one of the big themes coming out of the 2020 election was that Democrats were going to have a problem with Latino voters in the future, especially Latino men without college degrees. I mean, what do you think about that? And also, if there is an actual problem, what can we do about it? Not just in Arizona, because I think you will get out the Latino vote in Arizona, but across the nation. Well, look, I think we I think we're starting to have a problem with the Latino male voter if you if we don't talk to them. Right. Um, and we didn't talk to them in 2020. In 2022, we did better because we spoke to them. But we do need to make an effort because what's happening is that the Latino male non-college educated voter is starting to vote like their Anglo counterparts. And they're looking at politics and they're, they're saying, this is what they're seeing, right? This is going to sound very familiar. I, I work hard and I'm barely making it. I work hard and I can't afford a house. Everyone else is doing better than me. And like, as someone, I used to work as a carpenter, I used to work on work sites. I know exactly what these guys think. Like, why do I work so hard? And all these guys, all these other gals and guys are on welfare. And uh, that's what Democrats only care about, right? The reason they think that is because we don't speak to them, right? The reason they think that is because in some regard, they're right. Up until really uh, Joe Biden, we hadn't really done much for the working class. And we could have done a lot more. Had we had passed the $15 minimum wage uh, that Kirsten decided to, to help stop, that would have made a world of difference for these uh, families. Our income tax credit, world of difference for these type of families. These are the type of men that you see if you're driving down the road. They're the ones that are on rooftops, you know, doing some really hard work. They're the ones working on road crews. Um, they're good Americans. And they just want someone to listen to them. They just want someone to actually help them live the American dream. And when we don't communicate to them that we are that party that that, that is that or does that, the other side gets to decide – what we are. Yeah, the they fill the vacuum. To tell them, like, they fill the vacuum, right. And so we need to fill that vacuum 
not just with messaging though, but actually with action, right? If we're going to talk about $15 minimum wage, let's get it done. You know, the, the danger of people like, like cinema is that it, it creates this cynicism among voters that it discourages them from voting and actually empowers the people that want to keep these working class people poor, essentially. Yeah, but that's why they work so hard on voter suppression. The less people that vote, the better it is for them. I mean, ultimately, it goes back to what you were saying about the American dream, about living the American dream. I mean, yeah. we need to get out and speak to Latinos, obviously, early and often. and But we need to speak and to them about other the- people, too. Yeah. Oh, of course. But we need to speak to them about what matters to them. And you're talking about people want Mm -hmm. steady jobs. They want their kids to have a bright future. They want to know that if you work hard and you play well and you study hard, you're going to be able to have access to the American dream. And we mean to make sure people see that Democrats are the party that gives them the best chance of that. And I think that I think one of the things that that I'm reading when I when I look at you and I'm reading about you and I'm reading about this this issue is that. Latino males in particular, and especially older Latino males, are very patriotic. They love this country. And they love the Constitution. They're big supporters of the military. And I think that January 6th and election denialism, it didn't really Mm -hmm. jive that well with them. Am I wrong in thinking that? Oh, God, no. No, no, no. And and, um, I certainly saw that after January 6th. I did some polling on it. And what we saw were Latino males were very disturbed by it. They felt that there was uh, something that went wrong in terms of um, you know, the safety of this country. They thought it was unpatriotic to be an election denier. Um, and I think Democrats feel like sheepish about talking about patriotism, right? And I think that's a mistake. Yeah. You know, I, I love serving my country. I love I love being a Marine. And I know that in my Latino community, it is an honor to be a, a veteran. It's an honor to serve your country. And when we meet another Latino veteran, uh, we have this kinship because we know what a pride it is for our community to do it. And so we shouldn't avoid, as Democrats, we shouldn't avoid conversations about patriotism. Now, do we have to do it like the Republicans do it? No. I mean, you know, we have our way to be patriotic. So we defend the Constitution of the United States. We're the ones that believe in the safe passage of democracy from one political party to another. We believe in the effective use of force internationally when it comes to our military to protect ourselves and protect our allies. When it comes to our, our, our Republican friends, they, patriotism seems very, it's like a very weird thing uh, because, you know, for some reason, Marjorie Taylor Greene could advocate for the, the splitting up of the country, and she's somehow considered more of a patriot than anybody else. So we need to be fighting that argument. We need to be fighting that sentiment. Uh, but, you know, we shouldn't be afraid to do that. We, you know, one of the things I, I, I try to tell my staff, like whenever we have an event somewhere, have a flag there, Right. And it, it's okay. You know, we, we, we don't have to run away from, from this. And when we don't, we will win, right? Because there's a lot of people that just want to be with a, the, the team that they believe is patriotic and is willing to, to sacrifice to, you know, for anything for their country. Yeah. I mean, if it's we're in any sort of civil war, it's not between you and Kirsten Cinema. <laughs> it's between progressive Democrats and a rising autocracy. It's between democracy and autocracy. I mean, right. you've been quoted saying you weren't even surprised by Trump. You know, you grew up around a lot of people that you knew he would appeal to. And when people said he couldn't win, you were like, yeah, he could. And Uh I think that that's the thing people just forget that our democracy is really very fragile. It needs to be worked on. It needs to be held up. It needs to be supported. And the threat of Trump and Trumpism isn't over until we finally defeat election denialism and until we finally get rid of all the offshoots of Trump. You know, it's this is not going away. If you don't have a healthy middle class, you will not have a healthy uh, democracy. And as time has gone on and as we had more and more income inequality, our democracy has been 
at, at bigger and bigger risk. So, you know, while we're doing everything to make sure that we are putting in the laws to stop voter suppression, we need to recognize that unless we start making sure that we move people out of uh, poverty and, and, and even those that are middle class help make them feel more stable, we're going to be at danger of the strong man, of the uh, autocrat. But what we really need is increase the wages, make sure we have benefits, we will have like safe retirement. But there's no way, in my opinion, that you could ever have a safe democracy without a safe and secure middle class. Yeah, because otherwise we're susceptible to everyone that comes in and promises that they Absolutely. alone can fix it. They alone can fix it. I got to tell you, I certainly hope to see you as Arizona's first Latino senator. And not just because I would love to never have to talk about Kirsten Cinema ever again, but because I think you really would be a new kind of leader. And I think you're exactly the kind of leader that the new face of America really needs. Um, so before you go, tell us what you need, how people yeah. can find you and what we can do to help because we have to get you elected. So we are, you know, in the last month of uh, our first quarter, and that's where people are going to basically determine, is this guy viable or is he not? And so whatever you can donate, uh, please do it before March 31st at Gallego for Arizona, G-A-L-L-E-G-O for F-O-R Arizona.com. Uh, and once we really get going to the campaign, we're going to be looking for volunteers to be coming in, walking, door knocking, uh, phone calling. Uh, but in the meantime, please tell us about, tell people about our campaign. Uh, go to our website to learn more about me. Uh, and hopefully, again, talk to your friends about donating because it really does matter. My biggest donor and people that, that put down the profession they donate is teachers, right? We're, we're fighting uh, the good fight and we're going to win, but every bit's going to help. At the end of the day, people have to understand that the Democrat has to keep the Senate seat in Arizona, not just yeah. so we keep that Senate seat, but because if the most amount of people come out to vote for the Democrat for Senate in Arizona, that also means that we're more likely to win the president's uh, electoral Correct. college votes yeah. in Arizona. This is essential. So help Ruben in his first uh, quarter of raising so that people see him as a viable candidate and we can move forward. And maybe Kirsten will think it's not in her best interest to even run at all. She'd be like, I'm out of here. I'm going to go lobby. Yeah, some, whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> and then we can just put you up against MAGA because that's what's going to happen in Arizona. That, that'll work for me too. Either one. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ruben, and I just wish you the best of luck and you just keep us posted on what it is that you need. Thank you so much. So that was Congressman Ruben Gallego, the Democrat running to replace Kirsten Sinema in the Senate in 2024. Ruben can win Arizona. He's fired up to inspire young voters, Latino voters, Indigenous and Native American voters, and his voting record and passion for democracy will inspire all Arizonans. Ruben is a true patriot in every sense of the word, not just because he's a Marine Corps veteran, but because he's living proof of the American dream. And he wants to make sure that dream is something that works for everyone. Head to head against cinema, he wins. Head to head against mega, he wins. And a Democrat keeping this seat is essential for holding the Senate and the presidency. I wanna thank Ruben for joining us today and you for caring enough about democracy to be here. Now send that man some money. Show everyone that we the people will fight to keep Arizona blue. Until next week, PGA. The Politics Girl podcast is written and performed by me, Lee McGowan, in partnership with the Midas Media Network and produced and edited by Happy Warrior Entertainment. All rights reserved.